Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm here in London with Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. And joining us down the line from Canterbury is Spiked's associate editor Joanna Williams. Hello. This week on the podcast, we're discussing the Conservative Party in crisis, the Me Too show trial of Brett Kavanaugh, and the students who've swapped clapping for jazz hands. But before we begin, next weekend on the 13th and 14th of October is the annual Battle of Ideas. The Battle of Ideas is an unmissable weekend of debate and discussion, tackling all the big issues of our time. I'm organising a strand of debates on race and identity. Joanna will be speaking on a number of panels on feminism and sex. And Ella, you're organising a whole strand of debates on feminism. Would you like to tell us a bit about the Battle of Ideas and why it's not to be missed? This year is the 14th year of the Battle of Ideas. It's been going on for a while. And really the motto of the festival is free speech allowed. That means that you can say whatever you want at any debate. And the key thing about each debate at the Battle of Ideas is that it's public. It's audience led. You get to have your say. You don't just ask questions. You make statements, short speeches uh, and really interact with the panels. So we have sessions on everything from cryptocurrencies to optimistic bees and animal sentience from feminism is the ones I'm organising to the modern family what about surrogacy adoption right through to Windrush Brexit I mean you name it there is something there for everyone so be there on the 13th and 14th of October we've had disagreements in this party about Britain's membership of the EU for a long time so it's no surprise that we've had a range of different views expressed this week this is the moment to chuck checkers. It is a constitutional outrage. It's not taking back control, it's forfeiting control. And by the way, they know it. This week, the Conservative Party held their annual conference in Birmingham. Even before a single speech was delivered, it was beset by technical problems. An app leaking vast amounts of sensitive data to the public was an even bigger disaster than last year's collapsing set. But the Tories' problems go deeper than this. The party is split over the biggest issue of our time, Brexit, and it's equally divided on domestic policy. Now you might notice we had some technical difficulties in recording Joanna down the line, so apologies in advance for that. Joanna, you were at the Conservative Party conference this week. Can you tell us what the mood was like? Yeah, before I do that, I need to stress that I haven't suddenly become converted to the Conservative Party. I was there in a professional capacity. And one thing I think is really interesting is that I certainly wasn't the only person who was being paid to be there, essentially. I would say that professionals who are members of lobby groups or charities um, or campaigning organizations really comprised the biggest group of all at the conference. Then you had the main conference going on with with all the uh, kind of big names in the party, Theresa May, Philip Hammond, and they were speaking in the main conference hall. And there was no sense of enthusiasm at all about their speeches. They were speaking to half-empty halls of predominantly older party faithful. Um, and it was kind of just no, nothing driving any enthusiasm for listening to those speeches. Far more interesting were the fringe events where there did seem to be a reasonable number of party activists and, and particularly some younger party activists there. And I think what was interesting about that was just how different the mood around those 
those events was from the rest of the conference. There was actually some enthusiasm. So I've got to confess, I, I stood in three queues for three different sessions. People were queuing and queuing for up, upwards of an hour to hear the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, Boris Johnson, Dominic Raab. Um, speak. What was really disappointing was after you'd queued all that time and you got in to hear these people speak, there were so few ideas actually being discussed. The discussion was much more around um, what can we do to recruit people into the Conservative Party, as if that's an end in itself, rather than offering any big vision for the future. My first take was that it seemed very weird. So, I mean, obviously we have to mention what Theresa May did. <laughs> Coming out on her, uh, to give her speech to the tune of Dancing Queen by ABBA, which, you know, everyone laughed about. Not to read too much into it, I did think it showed something quite interesting because it was kind of an attempt to laugh at herself, but also it's this, like, deep desire, desperate desire within the Tory party to be relevant, to match Labour's claim of being the youth-friendly, easygoing, not stuffy kind of party. But aside from that, I mean, the obvious uh, problem that Theresa May and the Tories have is the reaction to checkers. She was trying to sell something that many party faithfuls had decided they weren't going to buy a long time ago. So it was a sort of very weird thing watching her trying to push it. Even in relation to if you take away Brexit and, and you take away the kind of weirdness of much of the co conference, the actual policy issues that you kind of look for in these conferences, the kind of where you announce your, your flagship sort of uh, plans, where you make big statements and make big promises, even those were sort of lacking. I mean, that's not unsurprising. I wasn't thinking that the Tory party was suddenly going to come up with the most fascinating uh, solution to the problem of the NHS. But, mm. you know, Theresa May in her speech talked about detecting cancer earlier with, with increased bowel cancer screenings, you know, which was like weird, weird for a prime minister to talk about that. And what's in the background of your head is, well, what about all the other problems with the NHS? I mean, at every point, it sort of felt very self-consciously lacking. In a sense, the party has been kind of on, on life support for, for a while now. Brexit has given it a sort of shot in the arm in a sense, but what a tragedy it is the the most important issue of our time, Brexit, you know, the promise of radical democratic change has been left in the hands of the Conservative Party. It was fascinating, Joanna, you said that the, there were huge crowds to see like Mog, that whole Mog mania thing. I mean, I, I find it infinitely weird that certainly lots of young people are suddenly lining up to see and cheer this like almost comic character figure of archaic Toryism. And you've got to give him his due. Jacob Rees-Mogg is really good on Brexit. I don't agree with him on anything else, but he is the only one really talking sense in relation to that. I mean, wh where do you think that is coming from? You were around these people. Is it a sort of genuine, is it a genuine like of him and Boris Johnson or is it sort of a misplaced desire? Well, I, I think I, I went to the session that Jacob Rees-Mogg was speaking. So I saw this for myself and he is completely mobbed. He is absolutely adored and hero worshipped. And I, I completely share your concerns, Ella. I'm kind of finding this a bit freaky and a bit weird what's going on here. But I think you've got to understand the attraction of Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, in relation to everything else that's going on at that conference where there's a real um, embarrassment almost about talking about 
about Brexit, about talking about any kind of positive ideas whatsoever. And it's almost like if, if you wanted to come up with a slogan to sum up the Tory party conference, it was like, oh, we'll make things a little bit better, almost kind of apologising, but a real poverty of low expectations and a real embarrassment about raising any ideas whatsoever. And I think the thing about Mog is that he clearly takes himself very, very seriously, almost to the point of parody, but he takes his audience seriously as well. He believes that um, people can run their own lives better than the state can. And I think when you consider the poverty of low expectations that's every, everywhere else at the conference, to actually have somebody who's going to talk to people about ideas, take them seriously, and actually has some ideas, whether we agree with them or not. And I think that makes him very attractive. What's really depressing is that he is the only one who is prepared to take people, especially young people, very seriously in this way. So I, and I attended another talk by the university's minister, uh, Sam Gamir, and he seemed to be obsessed with trying to find um, a, a, a conservative Stormzy. <laughs> and, uh, I kind of suggested that Brexit was a great opportunity and a real vote of confidence in young people, kind of saying, you know, we're not going to um, expect EU bureaucracy to determine the course of the future. We, we were kind of voting for young people to be able to determine the course of the future of this country. And he said, oh, no, we don't want people to think, young people to think we're just obsessed with Brexit and that's all we're, we're, we ever think about. And yeah, let's get back to trying to find the Conservative Stormzy. And in response to that, you think, yeah, give me Jacob of course the other sort of quote-unquote star or darling of the Tory conference was uh, Boris Johnson his view on Brexit was decided about a week before the campaign for the referendum he flip-flopped on just about every issue I mean what do you think it says about the party that so many of their activists have invested hope in in this man I really can't get on board with either the excitement or the hatred of Boris Johnson I mean like you said his position on Brexit sways with the wind and now that it is suiting him and his career choices um his <laughs> his ever more obvious desire to be to to take Theresa May's position you can't really put much by it because he just hasn't got the principles in place and yet as Joanna says we're in this sort of dire situation where you've got people like Bojo and Mog being the only ones that are talking sense on Brexit but I mean I think he really is a distraction. There was a great piece on Spiked about him being this kind of distraction because while all of the Tory party top members are sort of, uh, you know, falling a fiddle over every time he writes some kind of strongly worded column or makes a speech as he did at the conference sort of lambasting May, really what's going on is this, is Brexit and is the divisions over Brexit and Boris Johnson is just sort of almost the figurehead for that. I mean, I, I do not want to live in Britain with Boris Johnson as Prime Minister and that's not being extreme that's because he has been dire in every single political role he's ever held he's not someone that people take seriously and you know if this is the sort of credible contender for PM then I think the Tory party's got a lot to answer for. Yeah I, I would completely agree with what Ellis just said um, the Boris pantomime took over the conference in a way that was a complete and utter 
irrelevance, but also a distraction from everything else that was going on. Boris is just intellectually bankrupt. There just doesn't seem to be any um, original thinking there. He's a performer and, and the problem is it becomes all about Boris. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you like this podcast, why not check out The Brendan O'Neill Show, a new monthly podcast from Spiked. Each month will feature a new exciting guest. The first episode is with the ever-rebellious Lionel Shriver. Don't miss it. Up next, Brett Kavanagh. It's been three weeks since Christine Blasey Ford went public with her accusations of sexual assault against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanagh. Since then, we've had further accusations, delays to the confirmation vote, and endless speculation over Kavanaugh's guilt. Joanna, you've written a fantastic article about this in Spike. Could you tell us what the latest is in the Kavanaugh affair? There's a lot of opposition and has been ever since Kavanaugh's nomination was first mooted. Lots of women, especially, really disagree with Kavanaugh's take on abortion. He, he is rumoured to be wanting to overturn Roe v. Wade. And understandably, there's been a lot of anger and a lot of concern about that. But they've never been able to, people have never been able to successfully take Trump up politically on his proposed nominee. So now we see that uh, Christine Blasey Ford, a psychology professor, has come forward and alleged that Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her. Uh, this is 36 years ago when they were both teenagers. And last Friday, we saw that these allegations were, were kind of heard in front of the uh, Senate of the US so people could pass judgment on whether Kavanaugh would be a fit contender or not. The whole thing was a bit of a, a show trial. It was, again, it was a performance. It was a bit cringy if you actually heard what was being said. So we had this professional, um, middle-class, middle-aged woman reliving her childhood traumas in full detail before an audience, not just of the members of the, the Senate in front of her, but an audience all around the world. What followed was in some ways even worse, kind of became even more ridiculous. No judgment was reached at the end of the hearing. One senator in particular, um, Flake, was accosted in a lift by uh, two women who basically said that if Kavanaugh's appointment went ahead, he would be um, degrading the suffering of women everywhere. And so as a result of that, uh, Flake announced that the appointment of Kavanaugh would be delayed for a week to let the FBI further investigate. Quite what they would be further investigating at this stage is, is not at all clear, but the the kind of final verdict is due any anytime soon. One of the things that I found really striking is this compulsion uh, to believe the woman, to believe Christine Blasey Ford in this case. And it's it's particularly, I suppose, scary because in in this case, there isn't a lot of corroborating evidence to suggest that this event happened. You know, there are plenty of other witnesses who have said under oath that the party at which she alleges Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her did not take place. And it was 36 years ago. People's memories are not great in those circumstances. That's why many US states have a statute of limitations. 
and yet still there is this compulsion to believe this case has become bigger than this one man one guardian writer spoke of it as a referendum on the status of women you know if you believe christine blasey ford then you're pro women if you question her testimony or if you question the idea that it might not be completely true then you obviously hate women and i mean what do we make of that development there's so much wrong with this the whole point is who knows if this happened? Mm. I mean, Joe said, what is the FBI going to be investigating? What on earth will they be investigating? How can you investigate a he said, she said incident from over 30 years ago? I mean, it's madness. And when she was, you know, weeping, uh, there was people in the back who were watching weeping or the press were taking pictures of this sort of landscape shots of women crying. It was so exploitative um, in a way that really makes you angry, I think. Uh, and that's a real shame because if it is true, then poor her, you know, and if it's affected her that badly, then I feel bad for her. And, you know, you'd be inhuman not to. However, the abuse and exploitation of this is such a clear political game. It's not about seeking any kind of credible justice for a wrong in the past. It's about trying to stop this guy from getting a position I think that's a bit sick, actually. And I think what it really does is cast a very dark shadow on the seriousness of when we try to get justice for cases like this. I mean, if women want to be taken seriously, we have to stop this kind of crucible-esque hysteria. One thing I noticed was the constant shifting of the terms of the debate. I mean, not only were new allegations dug up and paraded around, there was an allegation by... Deborah Ramirez, that um, Kavanaugh had exposed himself to her as a teenager. There was a woman called Julie Swetnick who accuses him of repeated gang rapes. Now, those allegations have kind of been dismissed and forgotten about because they don't seem to be as credible as uh, Dr. Ford's. But then suddenly the debate centres around his drinking. You know, he was a heavy drinker, therefore he might be given to rape or he might at least just be a bad person. So in a, in a sense, it reveals that there is an uncertainty about the more serious allegations, even though people say how much they believe her. But one thing is for certain that people think that he is a bad man and, you know, his reputation is tainted. This trial comes almost a year to the day since the whole Me Too movement began to take off on social media. I think it really shows us some of the disastrous logic behind the whole Me Too momentum. Um, I think, first of all, as, as Ella's been talking about, you know, this, this assumption that women never lie is actually really disastrous for women because it suggests, you know, we've got no agency whatsoever. We're just like these childlike naives who uh, suffer trauma. And all we can do is, is kind of give testimony to the trauma that we've endured. I think on what you've just been saying, Fraser, it's really hard not to draw the conclusion that this is is politically motivated with a view to uh, undermining Trump's 
choice of candidate. But I think what's forgotten there is that over 63 million US citizens voted for Trump. I mean, I, I don't agree with them. I wouldn't have been one of them. But the fact is 63 million people did back Trump. And that does, whether they like it or not, um, give him a say in who gets to sit in the Supreme Court. And it, it's not a foregone conclusion that he should get his candidate. But I think it's, to me, it's really important that discussions about politics should focus on politics and we should challenge Trump, we should challenge Kavanaugh on their ideas and, and on their, their political views, whereas instead it's almost like an avoidance of actually, or, or cowardice essentially, not having those political disagreements out in the open and instead relying on accusations to bring these people down as if accusation alone is enough now to um, get anybody out of public life who you don't like. But I, I think it's cowardly. I think it's pathetic. And I think it seriously undermines women. You're listening to the Spike podcast. If you enjoy the show, why not support us by making a donation? If you'd like to make a donation, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button. Up next, jazz hands. The University of Manchester Students' Union have voted to replace the traditional round of applause with British Sign Language clapping, aka jazz hands. They're not even the first to do so. The National Union of Students adopted jazz hands and clicking back in 2015, claiming that regular clapping was triggering some speakers' anxiety. What do we make of this jazz handing phenomenon? Well, look, it's it's funny and people have been having a laugh and it's really stupid. <laughs> and you can say any normal person is going to clap if they like something. They're not going to remember to do this silly hand gesture. Actually, I remember in my student days at Sussex, we did have this thing at meetings. There was a whole range of kind of hokey-cokey movements. But actually at the heart of it is the kind of victim politics of student politics, which is that you have to over-accommodate for people's sensitivities. Mm. And I'm sure there are some people who are either um, have have disabilities, which means that sound negatively affects them or they're deaf or whatever it is, but they are in the vast minority. That doesn't make them irrelevant, but it's not the majority of students who need this kind of special measures. And so the sort of desire to accommodate for them doesn't come from a genuine kindness it comes from this idea that all students are sensitive all students are in need of special measures that's a bit more of a serious issue i think the people laughing at these jazz hands um don't really get that there's a much bigger problem underlying this that comes from the sort of the safe spaces the no platform and now the jazz hand stuff that says that students are weak and vulnerable and need to be protected by ridiculous measures yeah, I agree with what Ella's saying there. I think that's a, a really important point. But, um, you know, what these students have done, it, it's ridiculous. It deserves to be laughed at. It plays into all the stereotypes of the kind of snowflake student stereotypes I really hate. But I think it's also worth taking a bit of a step back and looking at what's going on here. I mean, my understanding is that this would have been voted in by about 10 students you know, if that. And yet what really struck me when I walked past my news agents yesterday morning, now whatever we think of the star, you know, it is a national newspaper. And this was the front page story. 
And I think there is something about, about that, no matter how much it deserves laughing at, the fact that what 10 students do should become the front page of a national newspaper kind of tells me that we've got a bit of an obsession in our society with what students are doing and what happens within universities that actually stops being helpful. Yeah, there's a bit of a symbiotic relationship with the kind of hunger for mad student action and uh, the student politics hunger to sort of piss off the tabloids, it seems, or or cause a stir. But also in relation to student union actions, I mean, I remember when I started university and uh, you were automatically signed up to the NUS, you automatically signed up to your student's union. I sort of had this notion that a student union would be like a union, you know. So, it, for example, if you got into trouble with your faculty for doing something, it would back you. If your landlord kicked you out, it might get you legal representation. I mean, students' unions really don't do any of that anymore, Mm. if they ever really did, seriously. Interest in and engagement in student politics has dwindled because you just have these ridiculous policies, like you said, voted in by a very small number of people. And there's lots of things that I imagine students want, you know, whether it be cheaper rent, cheaper beer in the pubs, whatever it is. But students' unions are completely out of touch with what the populace of the student body wants, especially if they're kind of putting forward these kind of ridiculous policies. Well, often student unions today are campaigning to have the price of booze put up to stop students (laughs) drinking so much. And they're campaigning for students to have less sex through consent classes Mm. and all these kinds of ridiculous things. I would just say one thing on on this sort of silly season aspect of this. I I agree that, you know, this story is silly and it highlights something very wrong at universities, but it doesn't necessarily do any harm that people are uh, jazz handing away. But I think there are a lot of ideas that come from campus that are pushed on by students that actually seem to graduate from student politics into real world politics. And and that's why it is important to challenge them, even if it's only a handful of student union officers sometimes. So a good example of that might be cultural appropriation, which several years ago, only people at universities had heard of. And now it's seen as the domain of some Labour MPs to call out cultural appropriation. Some of the madder student ideas do make it into real world politics. I think the politics of the safe space, the politics of the no platform was very evident at the Labour Party conference. You, could, you couldn't even criticise their safe space. As Julia Hartley Brewer found out, she was, she's been banned from next year's conference. Sometimes they are just silly, but other times they need to be challenged there and then so that they don't spread and don't take over mainstream political life. Yeah, definitely. So I totally agree, Fraser, that these things move out beyond the university and can have big consequences in society as a whole. And I would add to the list that you've used really the whole idea around rape culture, which very much seemed to take off on campuses, first of all, and and now has gone global, as we know, with the Me Too movement. Um, But I I think for me, one of the biggest issues around uh, young people in general, but students in particular, is this idea, as Ella was saying right at the very beginning, um, that they are all are vulnerable, that they are kind of victims of one kind or another. And I guess I think the reason why I found the front page of the star focusing in on this story quite so unhelpful uh, was because it kind of reinforces this idea that students are a victimized minority in society. Um, It kind of suggests, it, it, it 
lends weight to their argument that they are going to be scrutinized and picked upon and that they're somehow oppressed. I mean, obviously, it's it's ridiculous. They're not uh, victimized and oppressed just for being students. They're some of the luckiest people in society today. Um, but I think when newspapers do give this undue scrutiny to essentially what is for now, let's hope, a fairly trivial um, decision that was made, it can just unhelpfully reinforce this idea in students' own minds um, that they are um, picked upon, victimised, vulnerable. The majority of students are getting on, getting drunk, doing their studies, um, you know, thinking about other things. And it's a real shame that this is the kind of picture that's painted of student life. Because I tell you, you go to any university and stand on campus and talk to any passing by student. It's pretty rare that they even know where the student union building is, where they have these kind of votes let alone what kind of policies are being put in place or supporting them. So, you know, we've got to give a bit of slack to the average student who I think is just as bemused and cross about this kind of discussion as we are. You've been listening to the Spike Podcasts. If you've enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find us. And as ever, for your daily dose of Spiked, pay us a visit at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening and see you next week.